welcome to Conversations with Sports Fans. I'm your host, Doug Hill, and in this episode, I'm honored to be joined by longtime hockey play-by-play broadcaster, Doc Emmerich. In addition to calling hockey for an astounding 47 years and receiving the 2004 Lester Patrick Trophy, as well as the 2008 Foster Hewitt Memorial Award, Doc is also a diehard Pittsburgh Pirates fan. Doc, welcome to Conversations with Sports Fans. Doug, it's great to be with you, and uh, no one in the world doesn't want to talk about themselves, and especially if you've made your life in sports, you sure love talking about your early days of learning how to love sports and be a fan, so this is a fun subject for me. I only hope that it is for people listening. Well, I, I suggest to you that it will be. So thanks again for the time. And, and we'll just start where we normally start with all of our guests, which is, you know, an early recollection or remembrance of being a sports fan. What, what's your first recollection of that? Anyone who saw the movie Hoosiers, and it's 35 years old now, so there may be a lot of younger people who uh, aren't familiar with it, but it was a a basketball story based in rural Indiana with a um, town um, referred to as Hickory. It was fictional, but there were a lot of towns just like it in Indiana. And mine was very much like that. It was a population in the 1950 census of 627. Uh, We had uh, everything in the community revolved around the school and everything in the school revolved around the varsity basketball team. There were 13 celebrities in town, the coach and the 12 players on the squad. And uh, our games were played in a band box gym uh, designed very much uh, in the uh, in the architecture of the era. Um, the seats came all the way out to the floor. The referees allowed you to take the ball out of bounds with your feet in bounds because the, the, the feet of the spectators actually came right up and over the out-of-bounds line uh, because the seats came right up to the floor. There uh, also was uh, a stage at one end, and the band sat on the stage as well as spillover spectators. And at the other end was a solid wall. Uh, it was an old-fashioned scoreboard that had uh, that had uh, changing numbers for the score and a uh, hands on a clock that would count down the eight minutes for each of the four minute quarters. And that was my first bit of fandom was for the La Fountain, Indiana Cossacks. Red, white, and blue were our colors. And then um, as radio was very popular uh, and baseball was very popular, my brother and, and uh, I played Cub Scout softball and Little League baseball in this small town. The Lions Club kept Little League baseball going by uh, financing the bats and the helmets and all of that each summer. Um, uh, We became baseball fans and we could follow it on radio. Uh, During the day, it was the Chicago teams in Cincinnati. And at night, we could pick up broadcasts from Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and Boston and Detroit and all across in St. Louis. And uh, we became baseball fans. My brother, a Dodgers fan to this day, uh, even back in their days in Brooklyn, and uh, myself, a Pittsburgh Pirates fan. KDKA Radio made me um, a Pirates fan. And that was what I wanted to do. I realized I wouldn't be a great athlete at all, but I wanted to broadcast baseball until 
nearby, 45 miles away, they built a coliseum in Fort Wayne, and uh, in came the Fort Wayne Pistons, later moving to Detroit, and the Fort Wayne Comets uh, minor league hockey team, which is there to this day, and as we speak, they're currently in their playoffs with the Cincinnati Cyclones. And so I pestered my parents to take me to a live hockey game. And finally, at age 14, they did. And I fell in love with hockey. That made me a fan of the sport. And uh, then my ambition immediately changed. It was an epiphany moment. Um, It immediately changed to want to broadcast hockey. So from age 14 until I finally got to broadcast my first game to a real audience instead of to myself um time passed and that was 13 years later wow what was it about hockey that so captured you um especially as a hoosier because as you've already laid the groundwork you know basketball was king queen and probably prince and princess in that state yeah yeah how did how did hockey get a grip on you uh, I think it was the the combination of things, uh, you know, being a, a teenager, uh, I guess people that uh, were involved in wrestling at the time always felt that that wrestling's prime audience was people my age, you know, not junior high and, high and, and early high school age. And so hockey, at, especially in the 1950s and 60s, had that element to it. Uh, hockey's fights hadn't been legislated out. They still have not. It's just that they've dwindled in number. And uh, so it had the rough and tumble uh, part of it. It had the speed of guys going 30 miles an hour. Um, And it also had the skill level that you had to learn um, how to skate. So you had unnatural extensions of your feet with skates. And you had an unnatural extension of your arm in a stick and you had to learn those skills first before you could even play the sport this wasn't like the other sports where you just had to learn to run uh you had these other things you had to develop first before you could play the sport so there were all these combination of things that made it fascinating to me and eventually i got to meet players and coaches and be around them and uh, that helped win me over too i think the the greatest um asset that hockey has always had has been the people who were around the sport and played it because there was a humility about them. Um, You know, it's such a spontaneous game that it does keep you humble. And I think that was the one thing about uh, the players were almost universally from Canada and uh, they were basically humble people that were thrilled to be playing a game for living and uh, that was conveyed to all of us who were around it, whether you were a fan or a member of the media. Yeah. Did you, at any point in time uh, when you were younger, did you attempt to, to play hockey? I know that you said you probably were never going to be an athlete, but did you give it a go after you had seen that first Comets game? Oh, a couple of times I tried to skate. I, I bought skates at a sporting goods store, but um, just playing on a frozen pond on our uh, uh, in our country, there was a Creek there and, and, uh, I went down and tried to skate, but I was never very good. One of the, one of the, uh, main Mariners, the Philadelphia Flyers farm team tried to teach me by having me push a chair on the ice at one of our practice rinks, but I was pathetic. And, 
it was really not worth uh, not worth carrying on any further. I uh, I was more of a risk to fall and break an elbow, which was not really worth the time. Oh, what a wonderful recollection that is. Yes, I, I feel the same way. I think my first time on skates, I felt a bit like an ostrich on ice skates or I, how I would imagine yeah. an ostrich on ice skates appearing. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you're ungangly and, and you're really out of control while you feel like you should abandon that and just enjoy watching the others who can do it. Exactly. Exactly. Now, initially, I, I know that you had maybe a bit of a desire to um, pursue an academic, um, I guess, lean toward your broadcasting, um, you know, as you were first starting out, because I think you spent some time at Manchester uh, University in Indiana and, 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 and then went on eventually to get the PhD from Bowling Green, which is why we refer to you as Doc now, right? Yeah, I, you know, I've got to be honest. It was all a wedge to try to get into hockey. I knew that I had to at least have a bachelor's degree to, um, you know, to get by. Uh, but, uh, I was also interested in being a broadcaster and specifically a broadcaster of hockey, but I had to, I had to serve my, uh, apprenticeship. And so at Manchester, I was very close to a nearby radio station. And so I worked commercial radio on Sundays on the weekend, and I would sign on the nearby radio station and play all the church broadcasts and spin music and you know, to cover the spots in between paid broadcasts and read news and read sports and and um, get the Chicago White Sox on and read friendly Bob Adams, GFC, General Finance Loan Company commercials in the half innings and all of those kinds of things that were really good experience. Plus, I got paid $1.35 an hour, which was minimum wage back then. So I had some pocket money while I was going to college. Well, I had no experience with television. And I knew that if I actually achieved my goal of getting uh, an NHL job someday, I better get around television. And they had graduate assistantships at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, where Bo Schembechler happened to be the football coach still. Uh, and so I applied for a grad assistantship there and was granted one. So I taught basic broadcasting classes and got a master's degree. Well, I was continuing to go to hockey games, as many as I could, and uh, near Miami University was Dayton, where the IHL team that was in the same league as Fort Wayne played their games. So I went to almost all their home games and met as many people as I could, and occasionally I would do these tapes uh, of my play-by-play, -play, so I would have some on record. Um, when I finished my one-year master's program, I needed a job, so I sent these tapes, these phantom tapes that I made up, out to a number of professional teams. I got a lot of written letters back because that's how you got turned down in those days. You got a letter in the mail saying, thanks, but no thanks. Um, so I needed a job, and there was a, a college in western Pennsylvania called Geneva in Beaver Falls, home of Joe Namath, mm -hmm. that... Um, needed somebody to manage the college station and to teach public speaking. And so um, they had me out for an interview and I realized it was 35 miles from Pittsburgh where my pirates played at Forbes field and also <laughs> where they had a new NHL team called the penguins. So I accepted that job. I was there two years. And the second year I went to the editor of the 
evening daily newspaper, the Beaver County Times, and said, I'll cover the Penguins for free if you get me a pass. They said, sounds good to us. So I covered all the Penguins home games and started to get into NHL locker rooms for free and um, got quite an experience. But it didn't look like things were going to open up for me to fulfill the dream of getting to the NHL as an announcer uh, or as a reporter uh, other than a free one. So I realized I could make $600 more a year at Geneva if I had a doctoral degree. So I applied at two schools that had doctoral programming uh, programs in radio, TV, and film, and also had campus stations that carried the broadcasts of the hockey games for their university teams, Michigan and Bowling Green. When I went to visit Bowling Green, which was on the way from Beaver Falls back to my family's home in Indiana, uh, the manager of the public radio station there said, uh, we always have a student do the second period of the games. I do the first and third. And the student who did the second just graduated. So if you come here, you can do the second game. I said, do you need an audition? He said, no, you seem to know a lot about hockey. That's good enough for me. So I accepted the opportunity to teach classes and study for the doctoral degree at Bowling Green, recognizing there's no guarantee of anything other than I'll finally get to do a game that's not taped to myself. It'll go over the air to uh, people that can actually listen on an FM public radio station. After two years of doing all those second periods, I had an air check. I sent that out again to a number of minor league teams and one in Port Huron, Michigan in the International League, same league as the Fort Wayne Comets, um, called me and said, come up and talk about it. And for 160 a week, I was a professional hockey announcer and 47 years later, I retired. Holy smokes, you've been everywhere, man. Well, no, I, I, I haven't been as many places as Johnny Cash sang about, but um, the bus route of uh, seven years in the minors was a part of the, the hockey life I would never trade. Because when you're riding on the bus with players, they teach you the sport. And you may think you know it when you first get in, but you never know more than when you learn it firsthand after the games are over and you have a two to as many as 14 hour bus ride with players because uh, they, you just overhear conversations or you ask questions and they're more than happy to share it with you. Yeah. Wow. Um, and I seem to recall, I've either heard it someplace or perhaps I read it somewhere that when you were moving through the doctoral piece at Bowling Green, that you, I, I think you had a pretty significant non-academic advisor was that correct yeah you're absolutely right i was at bowling green and i'd finished the two years coursework and the only thing step uh, sitting between yourself and graduation is to do a doctoral dissertation which is like the longest term paper in the world uh that has to be approved by five academic doctorates uh five people that hold the phd but if you choose a subject, you need to also have some help in developing the subject. You also have to pick a subject that's never been done before. And one thing that hadn't been done before was a study on the history of, at that time in 1975, the history of baseball play-by-play -play announcing. 
And so nearby in Bowling Green, about an hour and a half north, was Detroit. And there was a, a wonderful human being, and it was well known that he was a wonderful human being named Ernie Harwell. When I was a, a little kid, I would write a letter to my grandparents, and it would take three days to get there. And then about three days later, I would start going to the mailbox, and sure enough, I would get a letter back. They would sit down and answer my letter that very day. So I sent a letter from Bowling Green up to Detroit. And about the same amount of time passed, and here came a letter on Tiger's letterhead. And in, above the Tiger's letterhead was penned H-A-R-W-E-L-L. He answered that fast. And I'm sure he did this for scores of other people that wrote and wanted his advice or wanted time with him. He gave me time. I took my reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder up to Tiger Stadium Oh, three o'clock in the afternoon for a seven o'clock game. And he gave me time about an hour, 45 minutes to an hour with that recorder running as slowly as it could. So I could get as much down as I could get uh, that I used. Um, and I uh, anonymously, I don't think he would have cared if he were quoted. And then we walked down the concourse inside Tiger Stadium to the press room. He invited me to go down to the press room to have a free meal for a college student. That's a <laughs> big deal. Anyway, on the way, probably the greatest lesson that I got from him was that we were walking down this empty concourse, empty except for the people that were working and getting ready for the gates to open in another hour. There was a man at his podium getting scorecards and pencils ready to sell for I think a quarter a piece back then. There were several quarters out on the top of his podium too. And that was to our left. To the right in the interior wall of the concourse, a woman was starting to get hot dogs on a grill as it was starting to heat up so that she could get them ready and then put them in a steamer so that they would be warm for people and she could sell them when they started coming into the stadium. And as we were walking down there, of course, that's the first time I'd been in Tiger Stadium since I was a little kid. Uh, I was not noteworthy, but they were both looking in Ernie's direction. And you could tell that they were hoping that he'd make eye contact with them and that he would say hello. And of course he did. And he first went over and walked uh, up to the man at the podium and he said, here, and he introduced him to me by his name first and last name, and said, shake hands with a friend of mine, Mike Emery. Well, he had just met me, and, and, and he knew this man who was a concessionaire, first and last name. Then we had small talk with him, and then we walked over to the hot dog lady, whom he introduced me to using her first and last name. Shake hands with a friend of mine, Mike Emery. And I thought, this is one incredible human being that he knows the names and numbers of both teams tonight, but he also knows the first and last names of concessionaires that he had not planned to see, but he ran into, and they were hoping that he would say hello to them, and he did. That was quite a lesson for me. And I, I guess it begs the question of me then, does 
did, is that something you were able to replicate during either your, your time in Port Huron or many of your other stays, uh, whether it be out of New Jersey or, or wherever? Well, I replicated it as best I could, but I didn't have the benefit of Ernie's brain. <laughs> I would write names down. And then I would review them sometimes as I was going to the arena. Some names I could remember, but other names I couldn't. But at the beginning of my time in Port Huron, I would write names down. I wish I could tell you that I was flawless. But that day, without any warning whatsoever, he came upon those two and he was flawless. Well, that was that was worth the trip, probably even more so than the meal itself, right? Oh, yeah. And more so than the meal. And and probably as much as any of the quotes that I wrote down and included in the dissertation, which I finished about a year and a half later. And uh, presumably the uh, the five person review panel gave you a uh, thumbs up. Yeah, all they needed to do was sign off on it, which they did. And I sent a copy, which was, oh, I don't know, 300 pages long. I know the uh, the chairman of my uh, the chairman of my committee. Uh, when I handed my copy into him, and you make you you uh, you make photocopies of of your finished product, and uh, I handed it to him, and he he sort of held it in his hand and shook his hand up and down. He said, "Yeah, it feels like a dissertation." And I'm thinking, I hope he reads it. But then again, you know, he's going to do an oral examination of me on it. So the chances are, if he doesn't read it, maybe I'll get off a little easier. But um, he, um, they, they were all very kind. Uh, that's excellent. Um, I, I know our time together today is relatively tight, so I wanted to, to pivot if I could. You, you mentioned 47 years um, calling hockey, um, and I know it was a job. I know that you wanted to do this early on. It was going to be your profession. Um, but were there ever any moments along the way where you maybe had to pinch yourself and say, wow, I just witnessed this or I just um, experienced that or something along those lines that, you know, it, it were, yes, you were still being uh, an impartial, in most cases, um, presenter of the news and information. But at the same time, it was like, holy smokes, that just happened in front of me. Yeah, there were several. Um, one that stands out because it was a first, and um, everybody that I worked with on the Olympics, whether it was CBS or Turner or NBC, they always had the same philosophy. Number one, tell stories, and number two, don't cheer. Because even though you're American, and even though in some of the games you do, there will be American athletes. Don't be jingoistic and don't make it seem like it's us against them. Uh, it's two sets of athletes and don't be dispassionate, but also care about both sets. Um, but in 1998 was the first time, and I was working for Turner, it was the first time that um, female athletes were competing for gold medals in hockey. And the, the thing that happened was that um, the U.S. had never won a major competition from Canada in women's hockey. And that went all the way back to, 
to the first world championships in 1990, I believe was the year. And every time they'd lost. Well, in the last of the preliminary games leading up to uh, the eventual meeting for the gold medal, it was clear because of the standings that the U.S. and Canada would play one meaningless game in the preliminaries because they were already set to meet in the gold medal game three days later. Well, Canada exploded in the third period and went ahead in this preliminary game four to one. And um, Ben Smith, the U.S. coach, called timeout. And at that time, I didn't know what he was saying to them. Uh, Canada was exploding. And and so here was going to be this is what Canada can do. Um, And what he told the team was, look, this is just the run up for the game that's going to take place in three days for the gold medals. So let's just settle down because the U.S. had been taking penalties. And he said, you win this game, you're only going to get, if you win this game and you have a dollar, you're going to get a bag of donuts. That's all. (laughs) And so he settled them down. What happened was the U.S. got six goals in a row in the third period and won the game seven to four. Now they've won a major game over Canada and they're going into the gold medal game, a changed group. And they won the gold medal game three to one. And I was privileged to do both games. And it was over in Nagano, Japan. And to see the U.S. team tears streaming down their cheeks, singing the Star Spangled Banner and having pulled off what I guess in a way was an upset. But they played, I'm trying to remember the number, I think 14 or 16 times that year. And it came out dead even. Uh, up to the gold medal game. And to be a part of that, uh, yeah, I, I, I pinched myself on how lucky I was to be there when that happened. Uh, Sidney Crosby's goal in overtime in the gold medal game at Vancouver in men's hockey uh, had never been witnessed by a greater audience on U.S. TV since Mike Arruzzioni's goal in 1980 at Lake Placid. So that was a thrill for me to be a part of a game that had that many viewers and was so emblematic of the best parts of hockey. Goalie pulled in the last minute, Zach Parisi ties it, it goes to overtime. And it was, despite the fact that the U.S. lost, it was a victory really for hockey programs in both countries. I think also one other one would have been when T.J. Oshie went into a shootout for the U.S. against Russia in Sochi in 2014. And uh, he took six of the eight shots because you were allowed to be a repeater after shot three. And he scored on four of the six and clinched it for the U.S. in the eighth inning of a shootout. So it was prolonged. It was dramatic. And uh, it was was fun to be there and to be able to see it. So I've been blessed to see a lot of wonderful games. Well, great, uh, great memories. And I, if I'm not mistaken, you also did some summer Olympic work too. Um, was was water polo something you had ever had experience with before? No, they figured that a rough and tumble, dirty game with goalies and nets would be just fine for me. And and it was good fun. There was a woman named Julie Swale who was a part of the silver medal winning team in Sydney, Australia for the U.S., who I was really well. uh, I was just paired up with a wonderful contributing person who knew the sport in and out. Uh, I could call out cap numbers and 
and learn names and numbers, I was able to do that. But to to really learn the sport, I had a great teacher in in Julie, and she could pick up the emotion of the game and the transition of the game really well and could convey the rules because many of the people watching water polo in the Summer Olympics, they could tell the cap number or the cap colors blue from white and understand which team was the U.S. and which team was the other team. But to uh, to understand what the significance of the the moves were and when penalties were called and when someone would be in the penalty area and power plays would be on, uh, that was strictly Julie. And she and Wolf Weigo later on were the partners I had. You're only as good as the person you wor- work with. So uh, that was that was great fun. And the U.S. in uh, Great Britain in 2012 the U.S. women won the gold medal over uh, Spain in the last game, so that was that was also fun to be a part of. Well, thank you. Um, I guess the final thing that I would would bring is try to bring out. I, I know that you referenced as a young boy that it was the Pittsburgh Pirates, KDKA, uh, again one of those AM fifty thousand waters that made its way to a small town in Indiana. It's. Um, are you still a Pirates fan, one? And two, uh, you must be somewhat pleased by the way the Pirates are performing as we speak today. I'm euphoric, and I'm still a Pirates fan. I'm watching more games this year because I was disappointed a lot by the last couple of seasons when they lost 100 and 101 games. But the fact that they have started out, and it's it's so exciting to see some of the Stories like um, Meiji who came up from Altoona and got his first RBI this past weekend and the big smile on his face after playing over a thousand games in the minors and never getting a chance. And and he came straight up from double A and he finally got in and got a big hit. But the the pitching they they would they would just have uh, thanked their lucky stars if a pitcher could have gone five innings a year ago. And now they're routinely getting starters that are going seven. And uh, David Bednar is is, uh, one of the league leaders in saves. The team collectively has the league lead in saves. So, yes, beginning in 1959, when I first saw them play at Wrigley Field live and Clemente was in right field and Dick Grode, who we just lost recently, was at short and Mazeroski at second and all of those wonderful things that are a part of your childhood. Um, I've been a fan ever since. A quieter one in many of the last 30 years, but a noisier one this year. Thank you for bringing it up. <laughs> well, I needed, I mean, you, you have to get that in when you can, because you never know when the tide yeah, may turn, right? You, no, you're absolutely right. And it's it's turned so radically in recent years that uh, you're you're sort of holding your breath, but it's been a fun watch early. Yeah. Um, as someone who rode a lot of those buses um, in the minor leagues in Port Huron, and I think up in Maine as well, um, do you have a greater appreciation for someone like the, the Drew, I believe it's Maggie, um, who you know took that long to get there? Do you have maybe a, a sense in terms of what he went through, a, a better appreciation? Yeah. I'm sure that he had a lot of times that he had just given up on the thought of ever making the majors and maybe just hoping for Indianapolis and AAA. And uh, undoubtedly, he had been there a few times in his career or 
at least at some level of AAA. But to get to the to the big team and then to deliver like he did in Washington, uh, that's that's his. I'm I'm sure he didn't sleep much that night. And I know when he when he came in, uh, uh, he he rounded third and came home on a on a fly ball that ended the inning. And the home plate umpire stopped him and said something to him. And I imagine it was congratulations of some kind for for getting this far. Um, but those are those are great memories for him, I'm sure. Well, uh, speaking of great memories, these are uh, great memories that you've shared with with me today and, and by proxy, um, anyone who's going to take the time to listen to this. So, sir, it has been um, uh, quite an honor and uh, we are very grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for all you do for kids at school. My parents were both teachers and I, my brother was as well. And I had great admiration for what they did and how they contributed all those years and the same to you. Thank you. You're most welcome. Thank you, sir. Conversations with Sports Fans is a production of The Sports Fan Project. Our theme music is, fittingly, entitled Wooden Championships by Lobo Loco. Please visit our website at thesportsfanproject.com for more information and to contact us. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with other sports fans you know and invite them to give it a listen. 